ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, what happens to cannabis use during pregnancy when the drug is legalised? Some lessons from Canada. Also from Canada, a warning about the risk of psychotherapy. That's the part of psychedelic therapy that's been allowed in Australia from the beginning of July. And in news this week, Norman, the American Medical Association is warning US doctors not to rely too heavily on the body mass index for assessing overweight and obesity. Yeah, so this is the measure of height and weight that we, you know, most people listen to us know what we're talking about, where the cutoff is 25, over 25 and under 30, you're overweight, over 30, you're obese. We've spoken about this before in the health report. It's not a new debate, but they're putting it into policy here and telling American doctors not to rely on it too heavily. The BMI has always been a blunt instrument and it's much more useful than an individual health measure. So why are we still talking about the BMI at all? Because it is a way in assessing people individually and for people to measure when they're coming down to a healthy weight. But there are problems with it if you rely too heavily. One is if you're really muscular and you're really well built. Like you and me. Exactly. Well, particularly me. um, (laughs) Your BMI can be in the obese range and you're not obese at all. Your body fat is very low because muscle is heavy and it's a weight versus height thing. The other really important issue with BMI is your ethnicity, that if you're Anglo-Australian, essentially Caucasian, then 25 is roundabout right as your midpoint in terms of BMI. But if you are South Asian, your family comes from India or Pakistan or other Asian countries, or if you're Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, because of your genetics and your risk of developing chronic diseases later in life, your BMI, which is so-called normal, is actually much less than 25. So 25 would be overweight and you're obese maybe at 27, 28, depending on your ethnicity. So what they're saying here is don't just take BMI because, for example, where your fat is is important. So take waist circumference into account and other data. So don't rely on it solely. That's really what they're saying. Do we expect Australia to follow suit? Well, I think that there, there, there is common practice amongst GPs that they don't rely totally on, on BMI and their guidelines do suggest you take things into account. And also when you're looking at waist circumference, the 34-inch cutoff for men is, is lower in different ethnic groups. So I think GPs are aware of that. And another piece of news this week, Norman, a tragic bus crash in the Hunter Valley last week. Ten people died, many are still in hospital And when people are struggling to make sense of something so awful, we often reach for advice that feels right, but it might not actually be backed up by evidence. Yeah, what we're talking about here is the psychological trauma of such terrible incidents. And last week we had experts going on air advising people in the Singleton area and first responders that the most important thing they could do is talk about their experience and talk about their issues. In fact, that's not what many years of evidence actually suggests. We've covered it many times on the health report. And in fact, in some cases, it could make things worse. Liz Scott is Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney. Welcome back to the health report, Liz. Good afternoon. Now, Liz, both the World Health Organization and the US Department of Veteran Affairs have both reviewed the evidence and not been at all positive of talking therapy in the acute stages of trauma. That's correct, Norman. And I mean, there, as you say, there is a lot of evidence about that, which indicates that although we think that, you know, we should 
you know, we're trying to be helpful in terms of saying, well, people should talk about it and that will be, that will help to reduce some of the kind of mental health consequences down the track. The evidence is actually not there. What the studies have suggested is not only is debriefing, stress debriefing at the time or in the aftermath of these disasters not helpful, but it might actually be harmful, which has led the WHO to say that psychological debriefing is not an appropriate mental health intervention in these circumstances. And what about critical instant debriefing, which is what first responders tend to get? First responders, by their nature of what they do, are obviously much more at risk of some of the adverse mental health effects of being exposed to an event like this or of a series of events over time. So there certainly is evidence that providing organisational support is really important, allowing people to come together with their colleagues, part of a team. We know that you know resilience comes from the kind of group of being together, making sure that people have good education about what they're likely to expect. But again, expecting this idea that everybody should have this uh, debriefing at the time or close to the time of the event has again been shown to be not helpful or potentially harmful. It doesn't reduce the risk of outcomes like depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance abuse down the track. And it might actually, by increasing people's physiological arousal and their memories and continuing the link between the memories and the physiological effects of that might actually cause them to be more vulnerable to those things down the track. So one of the problems last week is that people were being told that they should talk about it. So there's two ways of talking. One is you can talk to a psychologist or you could talk to your family. But also there's this um, idea that bottling things in is bad for you. Is there any evidence for that? So I think the evidence is that people respond to these things differently. There's a lot of individual variability. Some people have are in a state of kind of shock or disbelief or denial. Other people are much keener to kind of talk about it and express themselves. Other people just want to be hugged. But the majority of evidence is whatever you do, it is better to do that within a context of your family, your community, people that you know, that you trust, that you love. And that having other people come in externally who you don't know or you don't trust is not necessarily the best way for people to be able to adapt to what has happened. So if you want to talk about it, feel free. Um, yes. And indeed, if you want to get professional help, feel free. But don't feel that you have to do it. That's right. Don't, this idea that everybody should do it, that it's mandatory, actually will probably make some people feel worse, that they are being forced to do something that actually is not how they as an individual are better able to cope in the situation and might also make some people feel that they're doing the wrong thing, that there's something wrong with them, that they don't want to talk about it. Not wanting to talk about it in these situations, if that's how you cope as an individual, is a perfectly reasonable response and an adaptation to the events that have occurred. Down the track, may people may change their mind and, and need more support, but we need to respect that people are different and will respond differently. I remember an interview I did for the Health Report many years ago after the tsunami and uh, talking to a professor of psychiatry in Tamil Nadu, who spent his time trying to prevent the Indian government sending in psychological debriefers, which is what they wanted to do, because he was saying, look, we've gone into Tamil Nadu coastline and what people want are plumbers and electricians and, and carpenters to help rebuild their houses, not a psychologist to tell, ask them how they're feeling. That is exactly right. I have a, I have a similar 
kind of aversion to people turning up in high visi vests, you know, with mental health on the on the back, as this sense that that is actually an intervention that's going to be helpful for people, when people actually really need to be with each other. The idea about being together as a community and community cohesion is much harder if people come in externally, kind of offering help that people don't necessarily want or need at the time. Save it up for later when real symptoms may emerge. That's right, exactly. Liz, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Liz Scott is Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Sydney. From July 1st, authorised psychiatrists will be able to prescribe psychedelic medications for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. But a piece in a leading psychiatry journal argues that we are not focusing on the possible harms of psychedelic-assisted therapy, especially when it comes to the talking therapy that goes along with it. One of the authors was Dr Sarah McNamee, who is in the Centre for Research on Children and Families at McGill University in Montreal. I spoke to Sarah earlier. Thank you for having me on. Well, this is a prestigious journal and you've written a word of warning in a sense in terms of psychedelic assisted therapy. What drove you to do that? The main motivation that we had in writing that article was really just to put a few things on the radar that we were worried we're not getting enough attention. And one of those things being that there have been a few documented experiences of quite significant harm to research participants in some psychedelic trials. And we were concerned that we're not seeing very much discussion of that either in the research or in the media. You participated in one of the trials. I was, yeah, I was a participant about four years ago. And did you suffer any adverse events in that trial? I can certainly say that my opinions are informed by my experience as well as conversations I've had with a good number of other clinical trial participants. So what adverse events are you concerned about and that have been reported? Because when I've talked to the people who've been very actively promoting psychedelic-assisted therapy in Australia, they say it's overblown. Yeah, and I've heard that quite a bit too. And some of the adverse events that we brought attention to in a number of participants in both trials of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, there were somewhere between 7 and 8% who are reporting an increase in suicidality after the trial completion. For the psilocybin trial, that was captured by the research protocols, and it's talked about in the publications. But in the MDMA trials, these events happened after the termination of the research. There's also been one quite highly publicized case of abuse by the clinical trial therapist towards the participant. And when we talk about it in our paper, we're really trying to draw attention to the catastrophic systems failure in preventing and intervening in this case of abuse, which is captured on videotape. And you also talk about psychotic symptoms. There is one case, to my knowledge, of a participant who experienced psychotic symptoms after the completion of the trial, and that has not been reported in any of the publications or by the researchers in any way that I've ever seen. Now, you also talk about how psychedelic therapists, because psychotherapy is part of this process done properly, and you talk about the guiding principles really being untested for the psychotherapy part of it. Yes, the treatments are always talked about as a combination and like a synergy between the drugs and the psychotherapy. So the two components supposedly will give better outcomes. What we're really concerned about is that the psychotherapy that comes with it, even though it's often talked about it as being completely necessary and important part of the process, it's not regulated. It hasn't been evaluated. The manuals that are published, the ones that are available to the public, 
they don't look like the kind of systematized psychotherapy manuals that you would normally see in research. There's a lot of flexibility and leeway for what therapists are supposed to do or allowed to do in sessions. It's difficult to know what's going on inside of these sessions from session to session or from site to site. It creates a big problem for research and it creates a big problem then down the line for clinicians to know even what like safe and ethical and competent practice is supposed to look like. So what's the potential for harm in, in therapy? They're not really teasing apart what is helping and what's not helping and what might be actively doing harm. So how do we solve this problem? In Australia, on the 1st of July, essentially, it's all go in a sense. You find yourself in quite a bind in Australia because there may be more clarity around the dosage of the drug and the things that surround the prescribing. But there's not a lot of clarity around what it is that therapists are supposed to do. And my concern is that as people are going to be looking for the training is what exactly are these trainings based on? because it can't be based on evidence because the evidence doesn't really exist in terms of what the best practices are. So in other words, what you're saying is the place to be looking here is not just an adverse reaction to the medication itself, but what is happening with the therapy and getting a lot more detail around that. Yeah, there's this concern around abuse, and that's a really important concern that needs a lot of attention. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who was also in the clinical trial, and we were reminiscing about our experiences, and what struck me was sort of the banality of the things the therapist said or did in session and how deep of a negative impact something as easy as one short sentence was able to have. So I think we're outside of the realm of abuse and we're kind of starting to look at how the drugs and the psychotherapy can interact where in both of our cases there was a comment that was probably not the best comment to make in terms of psychotherapy but had we not been on high doses of drugs probably wouldn't have affected us quite so negatively as it did but because we were in the midst of these really big drug experiences these really innocuous seeming comments did enormous amounts of harm for both of us that took very, very long time to try to work through and recover. I'm most concerned about the kinds of clinical errors and the day-to-day -day mistakes that therapists do make all the time. What happens when you make those kinds of mistakes, but the person is on drugs that make them exquisitely sensitive to everything that's going on in the room? Difficult to research, but we do need to understand more. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you so much. Pretty salutary warnings there before we jump on this bandwagon. Dr. Sarah McNamee is in the Centre for Research on Children and Families at McGill University in Montreal. And a familiar debate, should cannabis be legalised in Australia? The law is patchy here, but in Canada, it's been five years since it was legalised for non-medical recreational use. So how much difference did legalisation make in terms of the numbers of people using cannabis during pregnancy? And how did it affect those babies? Daniel Myron is an author of a recent study looking into this, and I spoke to him earlier. Thanks for having me on the show. So what prompted this study? Were you noticing a trend in your clinical work? So I do practice addiction medicine and work as a family physician as well. And certainly I've encountered more patients who are using cannabis 
What we did is we started in 2015. We go to the end of 2021, and Canada legalizes non-medical cannabis in October of 2018. And what we found is if you look at the average number of pregnancies that required treatment during the course of the pregnancy for cannabis use in an emergency room or in a hospital, usually for cannabis use disorders, the average number of those pregnancies goes up 82% in the after legalization period compared to the pre-legalization period. It's a pretty big increase of a very low baseline. It went to 20 per 100,000 from 11 per 100,000. Were you surprised by this result? Yeah, and I think it's really important to put this in context and say these are fortunately very, very rare events. There's only 540 pregnancies in our whole study that get treatment in hospital for cannabis use, and we looked at close to a million pregnancies. So I think that when we look at this, you know, it's almost doubled. They're very rare. And I think the key question right now is, does this represent the tip of the iceberg of a general change in cannabis use during pregnancy? So for each one of these severe, you know, you need to be treated for a cannabis use disorder, are there, you know, tens or hundreds of other people who have less severe markers of cannabis use? They're using it less frequently, but you've seen a similar increase Right. So you're just seeing the most intense cases. What effect does cannabis have on babies if it's used during pregnancy? So we do a little bit of this in the study. Outside of our study, there is substantial concern amongst major obstetrical societies that cannabis use is not safe during pregnancy. And the kinds of harms that people have seen previously is that babies born to people who use cannabis during pregnancy tend to be born smaller than they would be otherwise, earlier than they would be otherwise. And if you follow them long term, it's associated with learning disabilities, higher rates of autism spectrum disorder, and other cognitive concerns. How does that compare to, say, use of alcohol during pregnancy? It's a very common reaction. People are kind of saying, what's the harm of alcohol compared to cannabis? And I think that the science of what cannabis does during pregnancy, the health impacts are much, much less developed and much less certain. Alcohol is unquestionably unsafe during pregnancy at higher levels. We just have far less evidence about cannabis, and I think it's hard to compare the two of them. And it's also hard to get into conversations about dose, because you know with alcohol that the more that's consumed, the higher the risk you have of conditions like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. We don't have the same kind of you know dose-response relationship. We just don't have the same kind of evidence. My preference would just be to say, we have less certainty of evidence, but similar, you know, warning and safety signals for cannabis. And it's kind of a moment in time where you have an opportunity to have these, not that you can't have conversations about alcohol at any time, but with something that's newly legalized or is becoming more normalized, there's a space now to sort of talk about it. So what sort of messaging or interventions are you seeing as being effective or would you like to see being used? You know, if we take a step back, we can have a debate about what non-medical legalization has done to kind of cannabis use during pregnancy, but the data in North America is very compelling and clear that cannabis use during pregnancy is on the rise. And whether or not legalization makes that go up further, again, you can have a debate, but this risk factor during pregnancy is increasing. And I think that that in of itself requires intervention. And when we look at interventions, I think that, again, there's certainly a role for clinical intervention and intervention for people who are caring for pregnant people. There's universal guidance in North America that pregnant people should be screened 
in the same way that they're screened for alcohol use and for tobacco use, they should be screened for cannabis use and counseled. And I think that our, our research is highlighting the value of that kind of screening. And it's also highlighting certain populations who may benefit from additional screening or repeat screening. One of the things that we saw in our study is that having severe morning sickness seems to be a big risk factor for cannabis use during pregnancy. So it may be that someone who is presenting with morning sickness during pregnancy for care, that may be a really good point to have a conversation about cannabis. But I also think that we certainly need to talk about what are some population level or public policy related interventions. And that might be better warning labels on cannabis packaging, that might be public education campaigns, and it might be the way we regulate the marketing and promotion of cannabis in general. There was this interesting link between morning sickness and you know cannabis use during pregnancy. And one of the surprising findings in the study was that that link has grown stronger since legalization. And again, it's very hard. You know, this is not a study where you interview people and you say, why are you using cannabis? Tell me about it. But the fact that the link is growing stronger after legalization to myself and the study co-authors raised concern that the risk perception about cannabis during pregnancy and its use may be declining and that people may be increasingly using it to self-treat for symptoms like morning sickness. Right, because it's legal. They're like, well, this thing helps, so I'm just going to use it rather than maybe going and seeing their doctor and getting something that does the job with a lower risk. It's legal and it's also part of, you know, Canada, part of the conversation is, you know, when you designate something as a medicine, you know, cannabis is a medicine. It's a, the notion is that cannabis can be a medicine. I think you change the public perception about it. And if people hear about a substance like cannabis as a potential medicine, they're much more likely to move ahead with using it or self-medicating with it without having a discussion with a healthcare provider about the health impacts. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Dr. Daniel Myron is a public health and preventive medicine physician and a researcher at Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and University of Ottawa Department of Family Medicine. We've been a bit down on talking therapies on this week's show, well, at least some kinds of talking therapy. Now, a restorative, well, literally, actually, an Australian clinical trial called RESTORE, which aimed to see whether a form of psychotherapy called cognitive functional therapy can help people with chronic disabling low back pain. And indeed it did. They recruited adults aged over 18 in physiotherapy clinics who'd had low back pain for more than three months and which was limiting their physical activity. One of the researchers was Professor Peter O'Sullivan of Curtin University in Perth. Welcome back to The Health Report. Thanks very much. Now, cognitive functional therapy is presumably getting, like other cognitive therapy, getting around maladaptive thoughts and beliefs about your back pain. Well, not just that, um, Norman. It's about, well, what we know about back pain when it persists is it becomes really disabling. It can become scary and distressing. And the body becomes very protective. And often we reinforce this by telling people to be careful when you bend and sit up straight and brace yourself before you move to protect your back. And so this combination of, you know, you've got this back problem and you become frightened and you start protecting it sets up both thoughts, emotions and behaviours that, are considered to become provocative of the pain itself. And so it's not just a talking therapy, it's a doing therapy in terms of building people's confidence to re-engage with normal movement and activity uh, in a graduated way to build their confidence back and reduce their fear of movement. So in other words, you're addressing the thoughts and beliefs, but you're also testing the thoughts and beliefs Spot through on. the therapy. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And in fact, most of the, the, the work we're finding is that the learning happens in the body. So instead of it just about talking about it, it's like if we re-engage you with movements and activities that are scary or that you've avoided and do it in a way that's gentle and graduated and in a relaxed manner, often it disconfirms your beliefs and it reinforces actually it was safer than what you thought. So you, you, in the trial you did... Uh, cognitive functional therapy in the way you've just described. You yeah. added in biofeedback to some of the people yeah. in the trial where they wore sensors to actually monitor their movement. Yeah. And then other people got regular treatment, whether they were going to a chiropractor or a physio yeah. or what have you. Um, tell me about the biofeedback. Yeah, look, um, there was a trial that was conducted a few years ago that looked at um, using this biofeedback device. Essentially, it gives you feedback. So you see an avatar of yourself moving and it kind of reinforces this idea that it's safe to move. It gives you feedback about what your body's doing in space because our back's behind us, we can't see it. Um, and so there was a thought that maybe using that biofeedback would be an additional benefit to the therapy that we were already going to test. And, and essentially we found it didn't. Uh, and that probably reflects that um, the therapists who weren't using the biofeedback used other forms of biofeedback like video and mirrors uh, and, you know, demonstration. Uh, so the device didn't give us anything extra. So how long was the intervention for and what sort of results did you get? Yeah, so, um, you know, to change someone's whole perspective around their, their, their pain uh, and to change these behaviours takes some time. So it was a 12-week uh, intervention where they were seen up to eight sessions over the period of time. And then we did something that's a bit different in um, back pain trials. That we didn't just let them go. We brought them back six months later uh, and did what we called a booster session. And this is because our previous trials had shown that some people regressed after three months. And we think this is consistent with a chronic population, that sometimes people have a flare-up and they start thinking, oh, shit, maybe there is something going on my back, I better protect it. And they get back into old patterns again. Uh, and that booster session looked like, well, we showed large effects that were sustained out to 12 months, both in terms of reductions in disability, reductions in pain. People were more confident to move. Um, they were less frightened. Um, uh, and they were thinking more positively about their back, and they liked it. So these are quite unusual findings in back pain. Were they pain-free? Uh, no. So one of the things around um, any chronic disorder is that the approach here is that we were looking to get these people re-engaging and confident to use their body in a normal way. Uh, and we're doing qualitative work at the moment to explore what that means for these people. Um, but it's unusual to take something like chronic pain and make people completely pain-free. Uh, but significantly, they had significant reductions in pain and were well, very significantly less disabled. Now, we heard earlier uh, on the show about the potential harms from psychotherapies. Were there any harms from the intervention? No. When we looked at any adverse events between usual care uh, versus the two intervention groups, there were no difference. So, and that's interesting because often we're, you know, we're thinking, oh, it's pretty, you have to be careful with your back, you know, be careful when you bend and lift with a straight back. And in this intervention, we actually encourage people not to do that, to relax when they sat, to relax when they bend, to use their body body in a natural way uh, and, and, and interestingly they were significantly better from it uh, with no adverse events. And in terms of scalability does it take long to teach a physiotherapist or a GP or a practice nurse yeah. how to do this? Well this was an interesting aspect of the study in which we took a group of 
um, people who hadn't really had much exposure to this intervention, 18 of them between Perth and Sydney. We trained them up over six months. So we basically did a, a bunch of weekend workshops with them. Uh, and one of the things that we really had to do is to really train the physios to work differently with people with back pain. Um, you know, no, no longer lying on the bed and treating them, but really coaching them. So taking them through this kind of um, exploring the patient's beliefs and, and how they, you know, their, the impact pain has on them and then coaching them back to re-engaging with normal movement and activities. And that was a bit of a mindset shift for the physiotherapist, actually, because they're working in a different way. They're spending more time with people really coaching them rather than treating them. So that's an, that's an important aspect of the study as well. Training. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Professor Peter O'Sullivan of Curtin University School of Allied Health in Western Australia. The website is restorebackpain.com and we are The Health Report and we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.